And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and again, you can always follow what I'm writing about, the, a lot of the things that I'm referencing on these editions of Novak Now, and a bunch of other stuff uh, on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY. It's Jake two times, at JakeJakeNY is where you'll see a lot of the things that I'm referencing. You can check my facts. You can dispute me. <laughs> All uh, respectfully, I hope, of course. And again, at JakeJakeNY. This week, I want to talk about really three stories, but they're in a lot of ways the same story. <laughs> and I'll tie it all together, uh, not that it's too much of a task to do so, I'll tie it all together at the end. But what we're seeing in the discussions in the world right now and in the news media in many ways is the return to some uh, of the narratives that we heard quite a bit during the Obama presidency and before the Obama presidency as well. Not as much during the Trump presidency, but that's because the news media was really, really focused on domestic stuff during his presidency to the point that they almost forgot to report about anything else. Um, a lot of positive stuff. You heard me say on previous editions of Novak Now, for one glaring example of that is uh, most Americans who consider themselves news junkies probably haven't read one story about the amazing, amazing achievements and gains in the fight against cancer that we experienced uh, between 2016 and 2020. Uh, but no one was writing about that and a bunch of other really good things and a bunch of other interesting things because they were too busy talking about President Trump pro or con all day, obviously mostly con. And it was just one of those things where you know, it, we, the obsession was so pervasive that we missed out on so many other important stories. Um, but we're seeing the return of a couple of narratives that were true even before Donald Trump was president, that were true even before Barack Obama was president. And it's important to talk about them. One is, a, is an actual news story as opposed to just like a narrative or a, uh, you know, a thought process. And that is the International Criminal Court which is in Brussels, and it's, you know, it was set up decades ago to try to avoid another Holocaust. I mean, really, there's no other way to describe what the ICC was supposed to do. I mean, you can say a bunch of things about it, but the idea was to set up a court like this so that no more mass genocides could go, could happen, or at least could not go unpunished. And, um, you know, that's, that's why they did that. So, of course, like so many other things, the UN being the biggest example, the ICC has kind of gotten off course in many, many ways. And one of the prosecutors for the ICC, on her way out, by the way, she's about to finish her term as a prosecutor, decided to okay, after a long process, an investigation into Israel for supposed war crimes in the West Bank and Gaza, particularly during the 2014 war between, for lack of a better word, war between Hamas and Israel. Now, this was something that a lot of us were expecting. It was announced about a year and change ago that the ICC prosecutor was considering this. And when she did that, a lot of the member countries, a lot of European countries are members of the ICC, uh, actually spoke up against it, even though they're not usually great friends of Israel. They said that this wasn't really in their jurisdiction. Um, again, it wasn't all the countries in the ICC, it was just but a, a decent number. Um, they talked about how this is not, more importantly, this is not something that the ICC was set up for. Like I said, the ICC was basically set up because 
They wanted to stop another mass genocide like the Holocaust. They wanted to stop something like another Bosnian war ethnic cleansing type of thing, although that ICC didn't do anything to stop that. They wanted to, to, that's the point. Not a case like what you have in Israel where we're talking about disputed facts up the wazoo. There's nobody who can prove war crimes against Israel. No one ever has in these uh, situations with the Palestinians. Uh, it certainly wasn't mass genocide, even if it had occurred. But of course, I don't even want to. I don't even want to entertain the, that possibility because that's just it's just outrageously not true. And it's it's not in their jurisdiction. This is a country Israel's not a member. You know, it, it's it's a very very strange situation that they're even putting their nose into this entire situation. And look, if it were really really a mass genocide. Or if there was really some solid evidence of it, I wouldn't have a problem with the ICC going into any country and investigating these things. But there's no evidence of this. And nobody is saying it was really a mass genocide or the kinds of things that the ICC was really set up for. So we're already in a place where they're really not supposed to go. This is like sending a doctor in to do dental work. It's not the right, you know, this is not what the ICC was set up for. And this is so dangerous because we've seen this a million times where Israel and and sometimes the United States get accused of doing the kinds of things that really are happening in other parts of the world. There really is systemic genocide in Iran every day. There may be systemic genocide going on in China every day with the Uyghur Muslims being discriminated against. We may have all these things going on right now in for real. And unfortunately, just like so many other international bodies, the ICC is focusing on something that probably didn't even happen even on the smallest scale. And I think not probably isn't the right word. It did not happen. And there's no evidence of it. And this is what they're going to focus on when there is undisputed evidence of the actual thing that the ICC was set up to stop. Um, it, it, that's, that, that's not, they're not, they're not concerned about it. And for those of you who are hearing this and saying, well, that's moral relativism, Jake, you know, moral relativism, Jake, you know, if something is bad, it's bad. Folks, there's no moral relativism here. There is no evidence of any mass or real genocide in Israel committing at all anyway. (laughs) So it's not, it's a case of actual innocence here. Whereas they're not paying attention to very solid evidence of the exact thing that the ICC was set up to do in places like Iran and, and many other parts of the world. So, you know, this is the usual suspect kind of story that we've been dealing with. And again, other international bodies have done similar things. They condemn Israel all the time at the UN and things like that when there's so much real stuff going on in other countries. We're used to this. But of course, Israel has to decide now what it's going to do because here's the danger. The danger is the ICC, which has already decided without any jurisdiction or any proof to start an investigation and really, in other words, almost a prosecution, course the danger is, is that they'll convict in absentia israel and they could literally get a couple of european countries to go along with the idea of whenever an israeli official or maybe even an israeli former soldier or someone who's like you know not on active duty but still a soldier goes to that country they could be arrested i mean that's what we're dealing with we could deal with a situation where israelis will really be in legal jeopardy anywhere they go in europe So this is not something to joke about, even though there's no evidence for this investigation, even though there's no justification for it. 
real harm could be caused to innocent people and decent people, and the Israeli citizens and soldiers are, are threatened by this entire process. So Israel, I think, does have to respond, and they will, and there'll be many different responses over the course of the next several months. Um, for now, nothing needs to be done right away. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. It took them more than a year just to decide whether they were going to do this prosecution, even though that was ludicrous. Um, but there, you know, this is this is the process, and I and I, I don't think it's going to come to a really bad situation. I think that I think if you ask me, what's going to end up being the end story here? I think that there'll be some kind of statement that the ICC will probably come out with in a year, maybe more where they basically condemn Israel but decide not to put it on trial because the reason why they won't do it is because they don't have the evidence. So they'll be able to do all the condemnation without any of the actual work and any of the evidence. It'll be a disgusting situation. And then maybe one or two European countries will put out symbolic warrants for the arrest of, of certain Israeli officials. I, I mean, all of this is a horrible scenario, in my opinion. This is not something to just to brush off. But I do think this is most likely what will happen, and they won't actually be any action, but they'll just be some official fodder for people who really hate Israel to refer to for the rest of their lives. And for maybe generations to come, they'll be able to say, well, the ICC condemned you for this X, Y, and Z. And it'll be very, very sad. I want to use this story, though, that's going on in the news now to discuss something that in some ways I'm reluctant to discuss because... For those of you who have listened to me here on Novak Now over the years, you know that one of the things that I really detest about media now, and it's going on all over the country, and I think it's probably happening in other countries too, but it's definitely an American phenomenon right now. It's not just the news media. It's a lot of us are doing this. We're playing a game that um, a man named Scott Adams has titled The Psychic Psychiatrist. We're playing this game where you can turn on the news or open a newspaper today and there's a lot of articles telling us about what someone else is thinking and the writers never met that person and they're certainly not a psychiatrist anyway, but they're playing the game of psychic psychiatrist. And I'm very loath to do anything that is even in the ballpark of analyzing people I've never met, uh, pretending to be in their head and all those kinds of things. So I want to use this very important disclaimer right now before I go into this discussion because I think this ICC story is another example of something that I want to talk about. But before I do that, I want to make this important disclaimer that I am not talking about any real diagnosis of anyone in particular. I'm not talking about pretending to know what someone is thinking. But I am talking about a general political, what I'm about to talk about is a general political motivation, a general political strategy or a general political um, pull that exists in Europe that has nothing to do with any individual person necessarily, but has a, a collective power in Europe and has had a collective power in Europe, I think, since the 1970s. And here's what I'm talking about. We all understand, and I think even people who who aren't you know friendly to Jews and aren't friendly to Israel understand. We all understand that Europe as a whole acted reprehensibly and inexcusably during the Holocaust. There were some individual exceptions. We all know the bravery and 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 great actions of Denmark during the Holocaust and saving its Jews. We know that there were individuals in countries like Czechoslovakia and individuals in in Italy who worked hard to save Jews. But for the most part, Europe allowed the Nazis to, to 
do much more damage in the Holocaust and kill many more Jews in the Holocaust that even if they had put up a small resistance to having their own citizens rounded up and killed, they could have saved a lot of people, maybe even millions of people. Not the whole Holocaust, but certainly they could have done better. And of course, the best example of this is not necessarily just countries that were overrun really quickly and didn't really have a good relationship with their Jews at the time, like Poland. There were a lot of Polish you know, people who, again, I think, and you've heard me talk about this on previous editions of Novak now, clearly the Polish people weren't all hating Jews and weren't all happy and jumping up and down with joy that, that, that their Jewish population was being exterminated. But they didn't do such a great job of resisting what was happening to their Jewish neighbors. And of course, the best example of that was there were towns that after the war, uh, when some Jewish survivors, you know, that handful of Jewish survivors who came back to some of these towns, they were attacked again by the, the local people who had moved into their homes and taken their possessions. But I think the even better example of what I'm talking about is something that you may not know. We all know that the Nazis uh, conquered France very quickly and they occupied Paris for about four years, maybe more. We all know that. But did you know that the Jews of Paris who were rounded up and sent to Auschwitz or sent to the other camps, they weren't rounded up by the Gestapo. They were rounded up by the Paris police force who were more than willing to help their new overlords round up the Jews of Paris. So, look, I could obviously tell tens and dozens and hundreds of other stories like that, unfortunately, that I just said. But my point is, it's just not disputed fact, even among people who don't like Jews and don't like Israel, that Europe did not behave well during the Holocaust as a whole, as a continent. I know there's a lot of individual exceptions, and I'd be happy to talk about all of them, and I'm certainly a huge admirer of all the non-Jewish Europeans who stood up to the Nazis and saved Jews. And there were quite a few of them here and there that were, that have, you know, and, and as those of you who have visited the Holocaust Museum, in, in Israel know that there's an entire section outside the, the garden there where they have individual uh, they have individual uh, notification sign and signs and things like that um, acknowledging the non-Jewish righteous people of the world who, who saved Jews during the Holocaust so certainly happy to talk about that and, 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 and do enjoy talking about it, you know, because it's very inspiring when we talk about them. But Europe didn't do their job. The people of Europe didn't do their job as human beings during World War II. And it's just as overall, you know, you know a strong majority, sadly. And because, <coughs> excuse me, because of that, there has been a political pull. Again, I'm not doing psychic psychiatrists here. I'm not talking about any individual psyche here. I'm just talking about the political, the political force that Europe has been under, especially as the Holocaust becomes further and further into history. But there's been a pull in Europe for a long time politically to make less of this than really should be. To move on from this terrible mistake, this reprehensible record. Now, there's many ways to do that. You can try to forget the history, which for the most part, Europe hasn't done. They've done a lot to alter some parts of the history. Some countries have tried to change the records a little bit. But if you, if you go to Europe and you say, oh, they don't, they pretend the Holocaust doesn't happen, you'd be wrong. Most of Europe has, you know, at least acknowledges that this thing happened. But there's a political 
expediency, there's a political positive to be gained in Europe by demonizing Israel and demonizing the survivors of the Holocaust, who especially, you know, so many of them ended up in Israel. And by, in so doing, negating and taking away a little bit of the collective guilt, political guilt here, again, not talking about psychiatry here, the political guilt of Europe. In other words, Europe can politically say, well, what we did wasn't so bad, or it shouldn't be focused on so bad, our terrible lack of action and lack of doing anything to really save Jews in any big numbers. We can forget about that a little bit, or we can really not focus on it so much, because if we can somehow prove that the, the, the survivors and Israel itself is also a morally reprehensible country just as much as we were during World War II. So there's a political expediency, there's a, there's a political point to gain by trying to justify Europe's terrible record during the Holocaust by saying, oh, look at Israel, they're just as bad. Those Jews who, who survived the Holocaust and, and joined their fellow Jews who had been in Israel for however long, um, which, by the way, that's something that they like to deny. They like to pretend that there was no Jewish population in Israel before the Holocaust, which is just, of course, ludicrous. Um, but they like to be able to... There's a political point to gain. There's a political expediency to basically absolving themselves by saying, well, you know, those Israelis are just as bad as we are as we were in the Holocaust. So it's all even now. <laughs> so when you see things like the ICC doing this, when you see movements in Europe, when you see politicians or political groups or whatever in Europe demonizing Israel, it's not just your run-of-the-mill anti-Semitism going on here. It's not just the influence of Iran or other groups like that who are still very anti-Israel and still spending so much money attacking Israel and Jews in other countries as well. It's not just that. It's also the political point that needs to be, or at least they feel it needs to be made, or the political expediency of demonizing Israel just as much as they have been demonized, rightfully so, in Europe for their reprehensible behavior during the Holocaust. So this is all about trying to create, paint a picture of collective guilt that everyone has. And so there are no, you know, when everyone's guilty, then no one's, you know, no one's really to blame. And that's what's going on. Again, I I, I apologize if that sounds like psychoanalysis. It's not psychoanalysis. I'm talking about this from a point of politics, from a point of political platforms that European leaders and European nations and, 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 and European political movements are absolutely striving for because there's a certain level of legitimacy that they want to regain politically in the world. Which I don't, and I don't think it's working. As much as they, there's been a lot of good people probably, or, or at least people who are in the middle, have been sadly convinced of, of things about Israel that aren't true, I still don't think Europe has achieved that point where anyone really has tremendous belief in their legitimacy as a country, as a, as, as a continent. I don't think that even American leftists who very often talk about how Europe is better and we should be more like Europe really, really admire European government and really, really believe they have a moral high ground. I don't believe that even in the slightest. So I think, I, I think it's important to remember that when we see these things that are going on. 
you know, Israel and, and Jewish people who support and non-Jewish people who support Israel all over the world should stand up and refute the facts in this case or the, you know, you know present the real facts in the case, I'm sorry, against, the, against what the ICC is trying to do. And we should all make sure that we are not silent in the face of, of this injustice. But at the same time, we have to understand, we have to understand some of the motivations behind some of these things politically. And one of those motivations is to demonize Israel to, in turn, relatively exonerate the guilty of Europe. So that's very important. The other thing I want to talk about just in the last several minutes here of, of this edition of Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network is the return of the all-or-nothing narrative about Iran, which we're starting to see creep into the political discussions in America. We're seeing it a little bit in the news media. We're seeing it a little bit here and there, which is that same argument which we heard during the Obama administration, during the negotiations for the Iran deal, which was very, very controversial at the time and, and, and even more so now. And we heard this narrative really become the dominant narrative among those who were still talking about this. And I don't know if a lot of Americans ever really talked about the Iran deal all that much, certainly not before it was signed. But we heard this narrative of like, well, we agree that this Iran nuclear deal trusts Iran a little too much. And we agree that it's a little bit uh, morally queasy, gives us a little bit of butterflies in the stomach there in a bad way. But, you know, the only other option is all at war. You know, if we don't do this Iran deal, then the Israelis will, you know, bring us, bring us into like World War III because of Iran. And that was a, a narrative that a lot of people bought and swallowed hook, line, and sinker. And it's so disappointing because for me to say that that's obviously not true must seem like scoring easy points here, but it's not true. And it's even less true now than it was six years ago. Because in those six years, Israel and so many Arab countries have normalized relations. Some of them have out and open peace deals like with Bahrain and, and, and the United Arab Emirates and, and Oman and all that. There's been a change in the public realities in the Middle East that have made that all or nothing argument even less true than it was six years ago. And why is that? Because Israel and these Arab countries, remember, Iran is not an Arab country. It's a Muslim country, but it is not an Arab country. Israel and these Arab countries that, that, that have made peace and have, and have at least openly acknowledged their cooperation with one another have made it more and more possible to isolate Iran economically and politically to the point where war won't be needed to overthrow the regime. War won't be needed to keep them from getting nuclear weapons because the neighbors who they used to be able to get some cooperation from are turning away from them more than ever, the other Arab countries. And so, of course, this makes it even less the time, not only to make this bogus argument that it's either the Iran deal, some appeasement with Iran or war, it's the opposite. Turn up the heat. Now, additional sanctions and additional tough policies against Iran have that much more of a chance of actually having an effect because there's fewer places in their own region willing to help them. Fewer countries, fewer people, fewer ways to get around things. This is the time to turn up the heat, turn the screw even tighter. If the Iran regime were truly the regime that what the people of Iran wanted, then it would be illegitimate really to go down this line of discussion about trying to you know, have a new regime there. But 
we, what we've seen in in riots and protests that have been on and off in Iran since 2009, and certainly since 2017, where things really became to a head there with protests, and we're starting to see them happen again now. Again, it's clear to me that the and it should be clear to everyone that the rank and file, regular people of Iran, don't support this regime. This regime is illegitimate. I don't know if it always was illegitimate because after many years of abuses by the Shah of Iran, you could argue that the original Iranian revolution of 1978-79 at least had the hatred and and the backing uh, and and the, the 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 fundamental truth of the fact that they were pushing against a, a bad dictator in the Shah of Iran. And maybe the people didn't want a totalitarian theocratic government to replace him, but they wanted him replaced. So you could argue that, well, there, there was some legitimacy of that, of the original revolutionary government there. But I don't believe that's true anymore. And I think that almost anyone who has any real objectivity to them would agree. The problem is that Iran has a very, very strong PR operation. They have spent a lot of money putting people who have a voice both politically and in the media, in this country and all over the world, they put there on the payroll. Some of them are directly on the payroll, some of them are indirectly through Qatar on the pay- payroll, and some of them I don't even know they're on the payroll. Some of them may be working for publications where their editor tells them to, to write a story or do something and they don't even realize that it, it's the bidding of Iran. There's a lot of Iran propaganda going on right now, and a lot of it has to do for example, with the story, I mean, the, the, the faux outrage over Jamal Khashoggi and his death has a lot to do with Iranian influence over entertainment media and media in general. So this is what people are dealing with in, in right now. We're, we're starting to see the return of this all or nothing narrative, which of course sounds like a pretty good argument for more Iran deals, for more appeasement. <laughs> for more giving in. Because if you say it's either give in or we have World War III, uh, I think we would all agree uh, appeasement is better. But it's a lie. Or in some cases, it's just a real misconception of what the truth is from the people who are pushing it. It's not true. And it's less true than ever because the chances, if, 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 if san- economic sanctions would be recommitted to by um, the United States and other parts of the world and actually ratcheted up, we would not. We would get the dual positive of not only the fact that because so many of the Arab countries in the region, so many of the, some of the Arab countries in the region would be willing to help enforce this when they necessarily may not have been so willing six years ago, but you also have a chance that you could have a regime change there without the interference, really, of a foreign country other than the economic sanctions, which are justified. But these are important things to understand now. And, again, I don't want to play the psychic psychiatrist. I don't know why someone might think that, he, that, that going into the Iran deal, if they're not being paid by Iran or by a satellite of Iran to push for the Iran deal or to push for appeasement, I can't tell you why someone would, would really be in favor of such a deal. I don't know. So if you know someone or if there's somebody in politics who's really, really pushing for the Iran deal and we don't have any proof or know that they might be influenced financially or some other way by Iran or its satellites, then I don't know why they think otherwise. I'm not going to pretend that there's like some kind of 
other thing going on in their head that makes them think that making a deal with Iran is better than trying to stop them from getting nuclear weapons or think making a deal with Iran will actually be something that could be enforced. I have no idea why they would feel that way. But it should just be remembered, again, the most important thing to remember is that it is not a true narrative. It is not all or nothing. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.